Welcome to Founder Radio. I'm your host, Hugo. In this podcast, you'll hear in-depth conversations with the globe's most exciting company founders. We'll talk about their ideas, their successes, their challenges, and their learnings along the way. At Founder Radio, we celebrate founders. And we believe that innovative founders are critical to deal with the challenges humans face. They are society's explorers and work in uncertainty to expand our practical knowledge each and every day. Building something from scratch requires creativity, intelligence, conviction, and endurance. Get inspired and learn from those that are changing the world. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us at Founder Radio. Today, we're talking to Jorik Bruins of Wakuli. Jorik, welcome. Hi, Hugo. Thank you. Jorik is a co-founder of Wakuli. Their mission is to make coffee a force for good. They started off as a direct-to-consumer coffee brand. They've now started opening stores as well in Amsterdam and beyond. Jorik's worked in the food and agribusiness in Africa and in Asia. He's been a board member of Slow Food Condora in Turin. Also worked as a sous chef in an Osteria in Turin. He has a bachelor in gastronomic services, a master's in food policy, the City University of London. And if I were to uh, summarize your entire education and work experience in one word, Jorik, it would be food. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, thank you for the coffee. In advance of this recording, you you sent me some Wakuli coffee. Much appreciated. The house blend and the Discover Monthly. I drank How all was of it. it? It was great. Like, honestly, both very... Tasty, but also very mild, but like a good wine. It was it was really great, and I, I got myself a subscription. So looking that's, forward to the next. That's one. good to hear. At least I converted one person. Yes, to exactly, exactly. So what's next for Discover Monthly? Current Discover Monthly is coming from Peru, mm-hmm. um, and I think you tried that one. Yeah, it might be. The next one will be uh, coming from DRC from the Congo. Okay, one of the most exciting coffees we have. Mm-hmm. And in terms of impact, one of the best stories ever. I mean, I've worked in Eastern Congo mm-hmm. since before Wakuli 2017 and mm-hmm. good friends, Marceline and her husband, Bertin, are running a cooperative on a small island in a war-prone area where they are producing coffee led by women, produced mm-hmm. by women uh, mm-hmm. as a force for good to try to make sure that there is some uh, bottoms-up approach to uh, actual economic and social development for the people in Eastern Congo, which you might know is, uh, is one of the worst places yes. to live on earth at the moment. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an incredible story. I can't wait for the coffee. You know, this, this definitely gives a lot of um, extra depth that I wasn't aware of. And Jorik, just for everyone to follow along, could you describe in your own words what Pakuli does? Yeah, of course. I mean, you already did a, a great job there, but in the end, we're trying to reimagine the coffee supply chain by in the most direct way, connect consumers and producers through high-quality coffee. Therefore, creating a win-win between the two and in short, uh, making high-quality coffee available and affordable for a big audience, right now still Western Europe with a focus on the Netherlands, and at the same time, creating a better, fairer, and more stable long-term market mm-hmm. and market access for smallholder coffee farmers all around the world. Right now from around 13 countries that we're sourcing from, long-term investing not only in quality, but also in regeneration of their farms mm-hmm. for a future-proof, stable coffee supply. Wow. Okay. And I've heard you and also your co-founders and colleagues talk a lot about changing the system. To start off with, what's wrong with the current system, say, that where, where the largest volume of coffee is being produced and sold? Well, to start, coffee uh, historically has been, first of all, produced in the global south, uh, the majority of it, and consumed in the global north, right? So in, uh, you have a big divide between producing and consuming countries. And therefore, we need to go back a little bit to colonial times. And actually, the role of the Dutch that played by trading coffee from Yemen back in the days to Dutch India or Indonesia, right? Current Indonesia. And from there, coffee went all around the world. Being actually produced in a place where historically there's no consumption and then shipped to countries like the Netherlands and, and other countries in Western Europe to be consumed. That historic divide has always been in place and is still the case today. And instead of a big colonial powers back in the days, it's now about big conglomerates. You can think the Nestle is the JDE beats of this world. They are trading the majority of coffee, one of the biggest consumed global commodities worldwide, right? We're talking about $200 billion in retail value, more or less. And these few players have a lot of power. 
they buy cheap and they sell relatively expensive, still too cheap, but relatively expensive for what they buy it for. And they keep that disconnect between that consumer and producer. And they keep that in place to make sure that they have a business they can thrive on, right? And, and you see that if you look at the, the valuations of these companies, the public mar- public markets, they're doing really, really well. A lot of coffee or a lot of money is being earned in coffee, but not by the people that produce it, not by the 12.5 million smallholders around the world. That's what historically coffee looks like. It's an hourglass model. It's a lot of producers, a lot of consumers, and a few people in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's not the only commodity where it happens, but because of the physical distance and the historical relevance of it, we see that right now consumers are being shipped off with uh, dark roasted, low quality coffee and producers with a very bad business model. Got it. Got it. And what does the value chain look like? Is it basically one step from farmers to consumers or are there many, many smaller interim steps in between? Many steps in between. We're seeing value chains with between 10, sometimes even 15 steps. And on purpose, right? Because in the end, nobody really wants to work directly with smaller farmers together because then you also have responsibility. And indeed, there is a physical, right? A geographic distance. So what you often see is a smallholder farmer. And I'm talking especially about smallholders because that's our focus, but it's also because the majority of coffee farmers in the end, 85% are smallholders. Mm. Talking about less than three hectares, two to three hectares. They often uh, have to sell uh, locally to what you call in the Spanish context coyotes or in uh, bad middlemen, let's say, that at a very low price purchase coffee directly from the farm or through a cooperative. Then it goes to a local auction, for example, or other local buyers. It gets exported. From export level, it goes to a a big trader, the big trade houses uh, traditionally in Hamburg or Switzerland that purchase it. And they sell it again to uh, big roasters. Big roasters uh, might roast and sell it to a, another coffee brand. And the coffee brand sells it to the supermarket that sells it in the end to you. It's a very opaque value chain. There's no responsibility to really talk where coffee is coming from because it's produced outside the European Union, mm-hmm. right? We have very great legislation in Europe where we're talking about products made in the EU. But when it's outside the EU, it only needs to say that it's not produced in the European Union. That's the only responsibility coffee brands have to talk about where the coffee comes from. That's how the value chain has historically been built and, and still often is the case, even though it's not necessary anymore. Okay, okay. And and if I were to buy 100 euros of coffee in Western Europe, how would that 100 euros be spread out over all those different steps in the value chain? You will see 30%, uh, like starting from the consumer end, 30% will go to the supermarket, right? Mm-hmm. 30 to 40%. Then another 30 to 40 will go to the to the big roaster. So I think indeed Starbucks, JD Beats, or even 50%, by the way, JD Beats or Nestle, depending on the product, of course, this is very much generalized. Mm-hmm. Then uh, some steps to traders and exporters. And in the end, an estimation, we can't know for sure, but most recent uh, literature and research shows that around 5% stays behind on farm level. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how does Wakuli do it? Like, how do you improve this system? By simply cutting out everyone that is unnecessarily there in the chain and working directly with groups of smallholder farmers on that long-term planning, creating a win-win, right? Not only for us to make more impact, but to create a long-term way out of poverty for many smallholders, but also for us to tap into the potential that coffee can be. A very tasty, differentiated product that is not dark roasted and not commoditized. It doesn't taste like shit, honestly. And I think what we're doing is we're identifying potential partners or potential partners sometimes identifying us, right? Coming to us. I mean, in this world, everyone is on Instagram, also the average coffee uh, lead farmer that is our age, right? Then we start talking if we can be of relevance for each other and can mean something for each other in a way that we can create a better market for them. And at the same time, they can upgrade their quality together with our investment to make sure that we directly leverage that great quality coffee to our end customer. So what does it mean practically? Smallholders work in a, often in a cooperative or a type of association. That association is led by the farmers, right? So farmer-led, farmer-owned. We work with them. They or export directly if they have the right licenses and availability and possibility to do it. If not, we work with a trusted change maker in the country of origin. So someone who is from there who helps us export that coffee or get uh, gets that coffee ready. Those are often great friends of ours because they have relevance in that chain. They add value, right, by creating or by having a great service to us. And then it gets exported. It gets uh, put on a ship, ships around the world, and we import it directly here in the Netherlands roast it ourselves, package ourselves. We've got our own distribution center 
and we ship it directly to consumers' homes, or you can, of course, purchase it in our uh, stores and bars. Got it. Okay. So instead of maybe 10 different players in this value chain, it sounds like you cut out maybe seven to eight because there's you, yeah. there's the local change maker, and there might be a shipping company, and that's it, right? Yeah. And important there that we decide pricing on farm level uh -huh. together with our local partners. Uh -huh. So we, we don't pay on export level when the, the coffee leaves uh, the harbor of mm -hmm. origin, right? Port of origin. We decide jointly with farmers what a good price is. And that starts from asking a farmer, what do you need for this coffee to actually not only survive, but thrive, right? What is the cost of production? Mm. We do research together in what it actually costs to produce a kilo of coffee. Mm. What is then a healthy margin? Because only if farmers thrive, we in the long term will thrive as yep. Wakuli and, and especially uh, all our customers as well. Yeah. And in the Wakuli value chain, how does the income for the farmer look like in the example I gave earlier? So 100 euros of coffee in Western Europe, how, how yeah. much is there for the farmer in the end? Uh, depends a lot on our product, but also on the origin. Because you can imagine in origins where the scale production is a bit more advanced, for example, looking specifically in the Latin American context, prices are relatively a bit lower because people can build a business on a, on a different model. But you can think that on average, we pay between 20 and 30, 25 and 30 percent of the pouch of coffee that you get at home goes to the farm and to origin. Yeah, from, from the 5 percent, right, that yeah. we were talking about before. So four to Obviously, five times as much. Yeah, and obviously that depends. I mean, there are years when the, the world's coffee prices, right, that are dominated by the, what is called the sea price, which is set in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, to be clear, right, that's mm -hmm. all uh, traded as, as future uh, commodities. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's very high, and then it comes close to the price that we pay. And at other times, we pay three or four times more. So where the whole world market fluctuates, and that's also directly one of the main issues in coffee. Coffee farmers don't know what they will be getting for the crop the moment they're producing mm -hmm. With us, they know before harvest how much we're going to buy and for what price. And we oh. always pay the same price as last year or more. We never go down. If the market goes down, we stay up. And that price, therefore, is very stable. People can build a business on it. Uh -huh. Because in the end, that stability is as important as a high price. Got it. Yeah, you can plan ahead. You can invest. Exactly. And, and typically, Jorik, would the farmers you work with sell their entire harvest to Akuli? Or do they have several parties they work with. I can imagine that it's interesting to work with Wakuli, but also maybe sell some coffee on the on the world market, on the exchange you mentioned. What does that look like for you? Yeah, again, unfortunately, there's no one story with 13 different origins of three different continents. But on average, we try to make sure farmers are never fully dependent on us. Okay. Uh, because in the end, that's also a risk, right? We're still a startup. I mean, we're almost, we're celebrating five years next year, but we're still young. We don't want full dependency of farmers mm -hmm. on, on what we can purchase. So we normally purchase anywhere between 10 and 70 or 80% of the crop of a farmer. Okay. We are often the first ones to come in to purchase coffee directly, right? All the other stuff is sold locally or to the, to the auction that then goes into the world's uh, commodity system. Mm -hmm. But we're trying, as the first one in, trying to change the model and invest in farmers before harvest to find other buyers down the line who can pick up their piece of the, the puzzle and also purchase coffee from the farmers we work with, right? Because a lot of work is done, let's say, uh, pre-purchasing uh, mm -hmm. the first crop in upgrading the local environment to make sure that coffee is of high quality. Uh -huh. And we want, we're willing to do all that work for other buyers to then come in later and also tell the story of, of the farmers they're working with. We're more than happy to share because in the end, like we are just a very small drop in the bucket in terms of uh, the world's coffee market. And we want other people to purchase the way we do. Yeah, that makes sense. And I can imagine that's very attractive to the farmers. Do you get flooded by farmers and cooperatives that want to work with you? Uh, yeah, uh, there are way more farmers and co-ops that want to work with us than we can, than we can roast and sell here at the moment. Mm -hmm. Our biggest issue is not supply. Our biggest issue is, of course, building and uh, building out our market share mm -hmm. here. And obviously, we only can spend our euros once, or actually your euro, Hugo, once. And therefore, we want to spend that well uh, where we can make most impacts. And that's often with farmers that are most disconnected from the markets that really need a bit of a push because they've always been stuck in that old school trade model. Mm -hmm. We're trying to yeah, be the first ones to, to make that change, to show that it can be done differently, to then also unlock the potential of that farmer group and their coffee uh, to other buyers. Makes sense. I think to me, your value prop for the farmers is super clear. What's your, your value prop or your proposal for consumers in Western Europe? There's a lot of competition, like the, a lot of them are already in a certain groove in terms of coffee drinking. How do you 
get them out of that and convince people to try Wakuli? Yeah, uh, super good question. And that's, of course, where we, where we started with when we started a few years ago to ask, like, what is actually, what is in there for, for customers? And what are we currently seeing in the markets? And what we're seeing is that the majority of coffee, especially at home, is being bought in the supermarket, right? 90 plus percent in the Netherlands and in Germany is bought on the supermarket shelf. There are many brands, but in the end, according to, to us, it all tastes more or less the same. Again, dark roasted, low quality commodity coffee mm-hmm. with, a, with a nice uh, different logo and, and story. And then there is this small niche, which is called specialty coffee, right? Specialty coffee is a coffee that is not straight as commodity, that is differentiated, that has a, has a flavor that is different from another coffee that we can objectively say has a certain quality, certain quality traits that makes it a unique and also, therefore, often more expensive. And that niche, that is your, your roaster in the, in the street, if you live in Amsterdam or Utrecht or Rotterdam or whatever, it's a roaster that is in your street roasting small quantities of high-quality coffee that is super expensive. If we want to change the coffee industry at large and we want to make sure that people consume differently, we need to make that offering. So coffee that tastes different, that really makes you uh, yeah, want to make a, a brew another cup, accessible and affordable. And therefore, we need skill and we need that direct relation. So we're currently small specialty coffee, right? That niche coffee uh, segments that is uh, max 5% of the market at the moment, which currently is trading very inefficiently because of uh, the lack of skill, but also because they are not turning around the system at all because they're still working with importers, exporters, etc. But just people who do it better. We said, what if we skip all those steps? We work directly with farmers. Therefore, can pay farmers way more, but are not losing a big part of the, uh, the pie to all middlemen, even if they're good. And then at scale can deliver that to consumers at home. And I think that's the proposition. It's high quality coffee, but for a mid to top shelf supermarket price. Yeah. And with a very positive impact that you'd otherwise not have. And it sounds like you're unlocking coffee growing areas as well that weren't unlocked before. I've never heard about being able to buy any coffee from Congo, for example. No, and honestly, if we look at Congo, it's very interesting because in my world, I'm in a small coffee bubble, obviously. A lot of people have been talking about Congo as one of the great quality coffees out there, but nobody dares to work there because it's actually mm-hmm. too difficult for many. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, war prone. I was there last year with my co-founder. We had to turn around when we came close to the border because rebels took over. It is not an easy place to work, but because it's not easy, we should not look somewhere else. It's very easy to work in Brazil. But we can't all buy coffee from Brazil because in the end, we're forgetting about those other 10 million farmers mm-hmm. around the world. Good coffee or die trying. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Our you, new tagline. You, you, you recently changed business model somewhat. In my mind, from direct to consumer to op- opening stores, uh, it looks like you haven't completely closed the chapter of very direct to consumer. Uh, you still do that. There might be a lot of actually cross-pollination between the two. Could you... Tell us a little bit about what triggered the change, how you did that and how it's going. Yeah, for sure. When we started in 2019 and talking again about like changing the value chain for the better, right? Creating that win-win. We said we also, and originally we pitched this to the supermarkets and then found out they weren't interested. And then we said, but wait, we also shouldn't talk to supermarkets because that's also a middleman preventing us to create an accessible and affordable offering of coffee. So that's how we started. Direct to consumer through your mailbox at scale. However... If you want to build it beyond those first 30 or 40,000 customers that have adopted Bakuli at home and they're drinking that on a bi-weekly or monthly basis, how do we build an actual brand that people can identify with and that goes further than uh, your average uh, direct-to-consumer shaving or whatever proposition comes through your mailbox that you don't really have a feeling with? And then we said we need to be visible in the high street. We need to be available in more places. We need to be also there for people who don't want coffee freshly roasted through their mailbox. I find it a great proposition, but my parents wouldn't want it, right? So in the end, we said, what can we do? We can or make a move to retail, or we can go B2B, right? Which is also an option because then other people can tell your story through their proposition. Or we can do it the hard way, but the fun way and keep the narrative with us and still be direct to consumer, uh, but in our own stores. And that's what we piloted last year. We opened our first store in October, if I'm correct, in, in, in Amsterdam, in East Amsterdam, a tiny a 25 square meter mm-hmm. shop to get people to buy coffee at home, but also to have their coffee to go, to get them acquainted with our coffee without directly having to have it at home. 
And that actually went beyond expectations, which was really nice. Because at the same time, we were just coming out of COVID last year. And we saw, of course, a bit of a backlash online, right? I mean, I'm also going to be honest. Anyone who's now is going to call me and say, I want to start a direct-to-consumer subscription business online, I'll say, please don't do it. The environment is very different than four years ago. So we also need to diversify. And what we're seeing now is that with the stores that are highly profitable for accounting, we're opening the fifth one next week. We're able to actually tell the story to people, convince them to drink better coffee, but also help them out to make it easy to drink better coffee. And at some point, they move or don't to online anyway. And we see a lot of synergy between the two. How do you make these kinds of decisions? Are you very much a gut feel kind of guy? Or do you run a lot of numbers, something in between, something else? It always, not always, it very often starts with gut feel. And then you want to back it with numbers, right? Not only for yourself, also for, for our investor base, of course, and, and, and our own team to be able to explain what you do. But I remember we were talking about opening our own stores in 2020. So one year in, I said down the line, my dream is to have one. Back then, there was one Wakuli store in every city. To be able to have one point of physical contact. I mean, you started the intro a little bit with my background is in food in a broader sense. And I love connecting over food and food in a broad sense, food and drinks with people in a physical location, in a physical space. So that has always been the dream. It was never planned for 2022, though. But of course, that's about adaptation is, is seeing what the market, how the market moves and the opportunity we got right from our investor base to say, hey, we want to test this. We believe in this. We can back it with numbers. We see in the market that this is working, but we believe that it works for us in our, in our storyline. And in the end, it's all about doing it and convincing people. And that's in the end, running a business is doing stuff and convincing people, right? Who are your customers? Our Core customers anywhere between 20, 20, 25, or 45. Light green, knowing a little bit that you can do better for the world, but doesn't want to be bothered the whole day with uh, how difficult the world is. Once impact, but made easy. Is living in an urban or suburban area. Online a little bit less, of course. We also see a lot of customers in more rural areas in the Netherlands, but lives in an urban suburban area and knows that consumption can be done better. Already doesn't buy the wine anymore in the bottom shelf of the supermarkets and, and leveled up their game by going to a, I don't know, a, a local wine uh, dealer or uh, maybe another chain. Got into sourdough bread recently, but still thinks, well, my Nestle coffee tastes actually okay. My Nespresso cups are actually fine until they, they don't anymore. And then they can come to us. And, and what does their typical journey look like? Because you mentioned in terms of the products they use, but how did they find you? Well, originally, of course, it's still a lot of people find us online. We're very visible and vocal online, of course, uh, running ads in a simple way, but also uh, trying to show what we do, the farmers behind your coffee and what goes into the process of creating this high quality specialty coffee for you. And where people find us online, they might first go into store or, of course, do their first purchase online. And what we're trying to do everywhere is lowering the barriers to try something different. Because you're rightly so said before, it's a very busy shelf, right? Coffee is a busy landscape. There are many competitors and it's an habitual product. And trying to get people to change their habits is difficult. I mean, coffee is one of the only, like, besides Nespresso, it's never really been disrupted, right? And if we're looking at our markets with JDE, and this is only going to be for Dutch listeners, but Aroma Rood, Aroma mm -hmm. Red, which is the main, the most sold coffee today in the Netherlands still. Oh, wow. That is the same coffee that my grandma grew up with post-World War II. I mean, that's pretty scary, right? What other product you can name now that your grandparents were consuming in the same way you are? Something needs to change, uh, we believe. And that starts uh, by convincing people or by making it easy for people to actually make that change, right? By literally grabbing a coffee to go at one of our stores or by purchasing coffee at home. And if you saw your subscription, you spent around seven bucks, including shipping to have coffee in your household. So lower the barrier for entry and explain uh, right why uh, coffee can be done differently and why that is better for you you make impact but it actually just tastes much better and that's the main reason to buy it does remind me of a relatively recent revolution in the coffee market with pads and cups and espresso machines do you look at that and draw lessons from it in order to be more effective in your marketing and your go to market yeah and that's you're totally right the one big innovation in the last 20 years has been single serve First the pads and later an espresso. And espresso is also, 
I think one of the only great innovations in a way, eh, great as in like in terms of valuation, in terms of money, great innovations in coffee done well by a corporate, right? An incumbent building something new and nobody believes in espresso when Nestle, when someone in Nestle started pitching it, but that actually revolutionized the way we drink coffee. So what do we do? We make sure that People from every brewing method, so also a pot drinker, which I would never recommend, honestly. I'm now going to be a bit snobbish, but like you get screwed over when you buy pots, right? There's very little coffee in that pot and it still makes an okay cup, but it means that you actually pay a lot of money, very expensive per cup for very little coffee. With us as well, eh, by the way, I'm going to be very honest about it. But what we're trying to do is make that journey for people who are used to single serve, who are used to their espresso easy, by also creating a product, but then better. So single origin, high quality specialty coffee from farmers that we know and you can get to know, put in a biodegradable compostable cup, uncompostable pot, sorry, for your espresso machine. At the same time, we're also telling you that you can level up with us. So I can make for any customer that reaches out to us or that we can reach out to the calculation that actually going to a machine, a full auto machine, right, that uses beans, that actually you earn back that investment in on average a year and a half or two years, right? So we're there to help you to level up your coffee game. And leveling up, we mean going actually from single serve to pots, uh, sorry, to beans, but we're uh, not there to be snobbish about where you come from. We're there to make sure that, that the transition to better coffee is as smooth as possible and therefore have also these kind of products. Got it. Do you think you could have started Bakuli 30 years ago? And then second question, where do you think the coffee market is going? Well, the first one I find super difficult, right? Because I'm, I'm 33. So always looking back at 30 years ago, what the market looked like, it looks like it's, it's, it's pretty uh, damn tough. But no, I don't think so. Uh, I think the last 30 years, a lot has happened. And that is that that geographical disconnect that we have between producing and consuming countries that is fictive in a way, right? That is what uh, Big Coffee makes us believe, that it's still uh, impossible to tell where our coffee is coming from. Anyone ever, I mean, call the big guys and ask where my coffee actually comes from. They can't give you that answer. Mm -hmm. They simply can't. But that's not necessary anymore. In the last 30 years, we've seen uh, great uh, improvements in the possibility to create transparency. And transparency in the end begins with trust, uh, ends with the fact that if today you don't trust me, you are a badass journalist, I will put you on the phone with farmers in Tanzania, Rwanda, Congo, mm -hmm. Myanmar, even though very difficult at the moment, or Timor-Leste today, because I'm, I'm anyway in WhatsApp with them. And of course, that 30 years ago was very different. So yeah, the time is right to uh, create this transition and make sure that uh, we eliminate bad coffee. And your second question, where is the coffee market going? Well, if we take the U.S. as a proxy, which is a bit unfair because, of course, the U.S. has a different background mm -hmm. because they don't have that history in coffee trading and drinking um, low-quality coffee as in the Netherlands, for example, or in Germany. But what we're seeing is that people are going for quality and the specialty market in the U.S. in terms of value is now around 50% of the total market, right? Oh, wow. we're, we're in value not even at 10%. We're seeing that people are moving to better tasting and more ethical coffee and, and choices in, in, uh, in consumption. And we're seeing a new generation that cares about what they consume and they want to vote with their fork, if you, if you might say, or in this case, with their cup, to make sure that they drink better. And then practically, where does the market go to? It goes to cold coffee. If you really want to know, everyone right now below 25 uh, drinks more cold and warm coffees in, in urban environments. I'm shocked. Yeah. So we're, uh, for example, our best seller this year for six months was nitrogen cold brew. So cold brew, a draft, looks like a Guinness, tastes very foamy. It's 100% coffee, seats overnight. And uh, that's also our big launch for next year to build on that, uh, that offering also at home. And what do you think is driving these changes? Because the technology part to me is quite obvious, right? Communication channels, also social media, et cetera. It's much easier to tell your story, to be in contact, to, to close that geographical divide. But there, yep. there also seems to be that other wave you're surfing where people are, are willing to spend much more on coffee and, and, and food uh, more generally. They're much more deliberate about you know where it comes from. I think they spend much more time as well on, hey, what kind of coffee am I drinking? Would I like to try something else? Uh, maybe taste different providers. Whereas a long time ago, it would be literally just that that one kind of coffee you'd mentioned. People would drink it for 30 years and that was it. But what do you think is yeah. driving the change? 
let's first of all not forget that we're actually spending very little on efforts. Yeah? I mean, I know that people right now, many people are in a tough economic environment, so I don't want to seem that I only see uh, the Amsterdam uh, bubble or, or the, the big cities that, that are big cities I live in. But we're spending relatively very little of food and drinks, right? If you look historically, but also in other in other countries where post World War II, we're spending almost fifty percent of our household budget on food and drinks. That is now around ten. That's actually super low. So we historically are actually not spending that much on what we consume, <laughs> and I think that has been reversed a little bit in recent years because we're getting a little bit rid of this Calvinistic idea that. Coffee or food is fuel and that's just enough. Producing enough is important and consuming enough is important, but nothing else is. And that there's a trend towards more home cooking, more of a restaurant experience outside, right? Better restaurants, better food, higher quality produce. Finally, looking a bit more for that connection of where does my produce come from, right? We're seeing a little increase in, in organic, of course, in supermarkets, for example. But obviously, it's all still very small. So let's not forget, and therefore I always say, uh, JDE, the, the coffee your grandmother was drinking as well, I presume is, if she was Dutch, is still the most sold coffee. So let's not forget that, again, I mean, we're seeing a surge in more niche brands giving you a different experience of flavor profile, but a majority of people still drink the same coffee. Mm. And I think we're there to fasten that transition where hopefully a catalyst to make sure that more people more quickly jump on that wagon to drink something that tastes better. Yeah. How do you think about <clears throat> growing what you do? And um, may maybe related to that, what percentage of your customers is now from the Netherlands versus other countries? Yeah, we are, of course, based in the Netherlands. We're a Dutch company. And we also decided to first have a, a big enough footprint here before moving into other markets. And we are servicing German customers with our subscription and Belgian customers. Everyone else in the EU can purchase our coffee as a one-off, right? So can purchase bigger pouches or, or taster packs, etc. But our real focus is on our home markets to first make a dent into that huge coffee landscape, right? I mean, if you're looking now at how much coffee we roast, and that will be about 200 ton this year, 200,000 kilos of coffee, or a little bit less maybe, depends a bit on how the Christmas sales are going. That's 0.1% uh, of the, all coffee being roasted in the Netherlands at the moment. Yeah. So we first want to make sure that here we actually have a certain market share before moving into big time into, into other markets. But Germany and, and Belgium and France are on, on our radar to conquer next, uh, also with our shop rollout. Makes sense. And let's talk about taste for a little bit. You lamented dark roast for a couple of times. Could you tell us a bit more about what's happening there? Why is everything dark roast? To me, it sounds sounds pretty good, dark roast, tasty, but what's wrong with it? Yeah, the issue with dark roast is not per se the dark roast itself. The issue is the underlying problem that you can mask any other flavor if you roast something very dark. Take the comparison of bread. Buy some very cheap bread in the supermarkets. You buy a very nice piece of bread at your local baker and you both roast them to hell in your oven until they're black, right? You know when the toast tastes back. You're not going to tell me anymore that you like one way more than the other or that you can taste the difference because it's all being roasted um, to the same degree that that is the, the flavor mm. that is predominant. Mm. And the issue with that is that we got used to drinking darkly roasted coffee because that was a way for the industry to blend coffees from all around the world. So it doesn't really matter. It didn't really matter what went in, which they could buy cheaply, right? Because you can shop around the world because when in Vietnam, the prices surge because of a climate crisis, you move to Indonesia, right? When Congo, there's, there's war and you can't move in anymore, you purchase it somewhere else. And by then, purchasing low, a low-quality green bean, right? Because beans are green before they're roasted. Mm -hmm. A low-quality green bean and then roasting it to hell, it all tastes the same. So the dark roast is a way to mask flavor. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I'm fighting against dark roast coffee until we all have great quality coffee. And if you then come back to me and say, but I still love my dark roast, then we will roast a great quality coffee a bit darker. But to mask uh, flavors and also to mask the incompetence of the incumbents, right, of big industry to actually purchase high quality coffee and pay an appropriate price, that's what we're fighting against. And therefore, the dark roast is, uh, yeah, has made us believe that that's quality, right? It even is sort of a, there's an Italian style to it, mm -hmm. dark, dark roast. It's even advertised on packaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, how dare they? 
But I understand. I mean, it's again, it's an habitual product, what we're used to and what we thought one day was good. I've noticed that Bakuli likes to put medium roast on, on its packaging. Yeah, we have light and medium roasts. Mm -hmm. That's how far we go. We don't roast super light, also on purpose, because we were talking about accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. And if I want to move you as a customer from Nestle, from JD to us, I can't go too funky on you. Mm -hmm. I need to know where you are currently in your coffee journey, right? Mm -hmm. And need to make sure that we are the next step into specialty. So if you look at our house blend or our powerhouse blend even more, it is a bit more of a traditional coffee in a way that it tastes like chocolate and a bit nutty, but still that high quality that we strive for. Uh, and then at some point, if you're used to that flavor and you say, well, I, I would love to taste strawberries in my coffee, you know, go to the Discover Monthly and taste our coffee from Rwanda, for example. It's like a strawberry milkshake. But going from supermarket to that coffee is too much. So we need to make sure that that journey is as smooth as possible. Got it. What's a good way of thinking about taste in coffee? There's the roast, sort of the excess of light roast versus very dark roast. There is Robusta versus Arabica. What other excess are there to categorize all kinds of coffee? Uh, yeah, there's the excess of very chocolatey to very nutty to very fruity. There's the excess of acidity versus bitterness, which has to do with the roast, but also with the type of coffee. So there, Robusta versus Arabica is in play as well. And then... More specifically, I mean, when we're tasting coffees, which we're doing three times a week, we taste all coffees that go out, all roasts that we do, we taste a sample of it to make sure it's consistent and well-roasted and, and suitable for you as a customer. We, of course, go a step further and within nuts, we taste certain nuts. Within the fruit realm, we look at fresh fruits or we look at red fruits or yellow fruits, right? Within, well, I can go, I mean, we're looking at four types of sugar. Is it more Moscovado sugar or more brown sugar or more caramel? So we can go as deep as we want, but you don't need to go there with us, but we will tell you what we taste in it because that's also half of the fun, right? In the end, I mean, have you ever, do you drink wine, Michal? Yeah, and I've done uh, wine tastings. It reminds you me of that. You've done wine tastings. I mean, let's be honest. The first time that you went to a wine tasting and people told you it tasted like peaches and, and, uh, and rose petals, you were like, yeah, probably. Now I can taste it, maybe. But you would have never come up with a descriptor yep. of peach because yep. it's all about training, yep. right, flavor. And we want to bring you along with it. You don't need to taste what we taste, but we will tell you what's in there and if you can find it. Because if people help you, remind you, or remember you, what you might be able to taste, mm -hmm. then it's easier. That's, and that's all from the fun as well. Do you organize tastings yet? Yeah. One of our locations in Amsterdam, on the Jan Pieter Heijenstraat in Amsterdam West, we not only built a bar and retail outlet there, but we also have a, a tasting room mm -hmm. uh, next to it. And that's every week or maybe every second week right now, we organize uh, public tastings where or our sourcing manager or our impact manager or our lead roaster will give you the whole tasting experience for an hour and a half or two hours. And sometimes we also do brewings there, right? So for example, you are an espresso drinker. You can come there to learn how to pull the best espresso shots or you love your pour over so you can learn how to make the best filter coffee or cold brew, right? We had a cold brew session this summer as well, which was super cool. And we're trying to engage as much, much as possible with customers. So at home, you will get a brew guide if you want. Mm -hmm. You can go to my Wakuli right your own uh environment where you organize everything around your uh, coffee uh, subscription and get to brew better with our advice but yeah for sure you want to have as much many customers as possible also come to uh, come to taste come us. in and uh, york you mentioned uh, that the next specialty coffee that will be uh, sent to me and many others is from congo could you tell a little bit more about you going there the situation in congo farmers and the cooperatives you work with and the impact that you guys are having there yeah, for sure. So Congo, for people who uh, don't have the geography of Africa as straight, which makes sense, right? 64 countries. It's a, it's a big, uh, big continent, much bigger than Europe, by the way, sometimes a bit overlooked still. But uh, the Congo or DRC is a country in Central Africa in uh, the Congo Basin. It's a Central African uh, basin. On the like, right of it, you find uh, Rwanda, Uganda, and then uh, Kenya, Tanzania on the, on the seaside, on the, on the Indian Ocean. And Congo, all the way to the other side, also has access to the sea on the west side. And Congo is huge. Congo is, uh, well, top of mind, around 15 or 16 times the Netherlands. It is one of the, in the Human Development Index, one of the lowest ranked countries in the world, around 186. It has been in war constantly, mostly because of interference historically by the Belgians. Congo, the DR Congo, sorry, little history lesson, but the DR Congo goes, used to be the private property of King Leopold II. 
king of Belgium in colonial rule around the end of the 1800s. And uh, I say private property because you can imagine that was one of the only or the only colonial states that was actually owned by a person and not by another state. So even worse than being owned by another state, it was owned by one person. And King Leopold called that the tea gâteau africain, my small slice of African pie, even though it was 36 times the size of Belgium, right? So just to be clear. Now, they've extracted everything from coffee growing, but also copper, gold, and other minerals. Congo, one of the most mineral-rich countries in the world. I mean, if you drive a Tesla right now or have an electric bike or have an iPhone, something in there comes from Congo, most probably. And historically, also after colonial rule, everyone has interfered in that country from Rwanda, Uganda, to the U.S. government and the CIA and everyone else to make sure that they had that little petit gâteau africain, that little piece of Africa that was so mineral rich, but so bloody poor. Government is absent at the moment. And in that absent government, there's sort of a vacuum where around 70 armed militias, or only in the eastern Congo, so on the east side of the country, that has nothing to do with the capital in Kinshasa and the west, are fighting for those minerals backed by different powers. In that whole war-torn eastern piece of Congo that is close to the border of Rwanda and Uganda, there is an island in a lake. The lake is called Ijwi. And uh, on that island, sorry, the, the island is called Ichwi, the lake is called uh, Lake Kivu. And on that island, there is a cooperative that is Rebuild Women's Hope, that's the name they chose themselves, to focus grounds like bottoms up ground led by uh, Marceline, Congolese woman from there, and her husband Bertin, and led by them to uh, create prosperity for all women and everyone involved in coffee production. So we can focus on women. If you focus on women, they say society is prosper. Hmm. Congo, named by the, by the Financial Times, is one of the worst places for women to live on the world. has a huge issue with gender equality, even bigger than, than almost anywhere else. And women historically can't own farms, can't export coffee. And all this coffee was, that was locally produced was smuggled into Rwanda. There were no export markets. There was no opportunity for economic prosperity. In the absence of the government, Marceline said, if we now through coffee create a social network of women on the island, and it's an island with 300,000 people, eh? we're not talking about Tessel, we're not talking about a tiny island. If we through coffee actually create economic opportunities for women, then we might have a chance here to prosper and to show as an example to the rest of the Eastern Congo how we can live in peace together. And that's what she did. And that's what we're helping her with, uh, creating that dream. And they're helping us with one of the most tasty coffees ever. You will taste it next month. They, it's just a short, right? They build a vocational center. So women are learning, uh, learning other trades besides coffee growing because outside season, then they can go into, into uh, uh, sewing classes or other stuff. Uh, they've built a hospital, the only hospital on that side of the island, where actually the sister of Marceline is the only doctor in the hospital. That hospital has been built with premiums that we pay on coffee. And in the end, what they're showing, they're some of the most badass entrepreneurs I ever met, Marceline and Bertin. Really, really cool. What they're showing is that when everything else is absent, you can still make a change. And they're making the biggest change I've seen in any origin, actually, or one of the biggest changes I've seen in any origin we work with. That's a, yeah, that's an incredible example, I think, of how coffee can change the world in this, uh, in this case. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, and, and employ, employ 1,400 people, wow. for example, right? Wow. And uh, I mean, during harvest, but also have over 2,000 members that are actually now sending coffee at a very high premium. Our, to us and one other buyer now, luckily in the US, and we're still trying to find other, other purchasing partners as well. Yeah, amazing. And I think a bit very inspiring for everyone all over the place. Like if, if the two of them can uh, start a business like that in Congo, yeah, and, and then if, if uh, me or my co-founder are talking about any hardship or anything that doesn't really, exactly. uh, really that we don't really like, we're like, but wait a second, yeah, think yeah. about Marceline and her environment, and then we should really shut up here. Yeah. And the cool thing is, Marceline was uh, with us and many, met some mm-hmm. of our online customers mm-hmm. because she came, she visited us in the Netherlands last year, and we had a tasting session, and she gave a, gave a presentation to a number of our interested customers. And seeing that, seeing those worlds connect is why I started this business. Showing that it's actually possible to connect to seemingly very disconnected mm-hmm. people. Marceline, and uh, I remember this, this couple, an elderly couple, I think in their 70s, that came from Eindhoven by train to shake Marceline's hand because they loved her coffee. Seeing that happening under our roof was proof that it's possible to do what we do. How did you get to the idea of Bakuri? So... 
Long story short, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I had my first gig in coffee through uh, the Slow Food Foundation. Mm-hmm. And I was for the first time seeing coffee, gro- coffee growing region in Ethiopia and I was mesmerized. It's like, well, is this the product we're consuming every day? Nobody has a clue. It's actually a cherry or a berry that is grown in a forest environment, if it's done well, uh, that has to be handpicked throughout a season for three months and then fermented and then washed and then dried for 30 days on beds under the sun and then exported and roasted. And I was like, this is super, super exciting. I mean, if you're into food, you're like, is this the way it's produced? Mm-hmm. I need to do something with it. And at the same time, I saw the disbalance between how we uh, divide the, the profits of coffee production. And at the same time, it's one of the, again, uh, biggest traded commodities. So also a huge impact to be made if it's done well. Fast forward, living in Tanzania, I had a job. I worked for a few years as a consultant for coffee farming communities, coffee cooperatives. And I helped them on access to markets and access to finance. So actually what we're doing now, practically in the chain, I used to advise them on. And advising, and it's very interesting, but at the same time, I was running into a wall. I was working in, I was living in Tanzania. I lived in, in Dar es Salaam and also in, in, uh, in a small village for a year. And I was living a few years there. I was working in all East African context, moved to Nepal, lived in Nepal, worked in South Asia in the same context. And always the same thing. I was working with smaller farmers. We were doing projects and programs that were very interesting, but always CSR related, right? So corporate social responsibility of the big incumbents trying mm-hmm. to show mm-hmm. uh, the farmer behind your coffee on their 1% of their, mm-hmm. their whole uh, coffee business. And I was actually not doing great in feeling better about what I was doing at some point. Just like, am I just helping to greenwash the sector mm-hmm. at large? Mm-hmm. And that's the moment, having worked a few years and lived and, and made many friends in the coffee context in the global south, decided together with my co-founder, who at that moment was a venture builder. So he was way more on the startup side, building mm-hmm. tech and consumer ventures uh, for corporates saying, hey, I see an issue in coffee. I think it can be disrupted. Well, and when I said the word disruption, I think that he uh, was like, oh, finally, I found my problem, right? Because many people want to start a business, but they don't have their problem yet. And we put one plus one uh, together and, and decided well, in two years' time, when we were still doing this part-time, but decided at some point to launch uh, Wakuri as a, as a possible solution to the inequalities in coffee. Awesome. I'd love to switch gears a little bit, Jörg, and talk a little bit more about your personal journey. You've seen a lot of the world. You've lived in Italy, Tanzania, Nepal, London, Amsterdam. Could you describe your journey and what the, what the red thread was throughout all of those locations? Well, I don't know if I'm, if I'm making up a red thread now or it was there from the beginning, right? But in hindsight, I moved away from the Netherlands when I was 20. I grew up in a small village in, in Drenthe, in the north of the Netherlands, and lived there my whole life, a very safe life, uh, until I was 17 and, and moved to study here in Amsterdam. I've always been interested in, in food. And that has been, I think, in the end, uh, again, going back to food, that has been the start of everything. And it had a lot to do with the fact that my parents are the worst cooks ever. I hope they will never listen to this podcast. Uh, but they are the worst cooks because they didn't care. They were the post-World uh, War II uh, baby boom mm-hmm. generation. It was about quantity and having enough and making sure there were some vegetables in there and, and that's it. Right? Des- and, describe and, a typical dish for us in the Bruins family home. Uh, if my dad would cook between brackets, he did that once a week, he would buy a frozen pizza and then put extra stuff, extra topics on. And then he would call it cooking. So he would put extra cheese and like a paprika, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like a bell pepper mm-hmm. on there. And then say, oh, it's our vegetables. And then we would eat a pizza or chicken tonight. I don't know if you're aware, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the products. Mm-hmm. It's a, a very uh, disgusting pineapple, tomato, saucy type of chicken with, with dry rice. Yeah, those two are, are really memorable, and the rest I don't even want to talk about. It was very low flavor, uh, very non-exotic. Do you recognize so you this had, at all? You or, had to do uh, something about it. Yeah. No, and the thing is, and that's honestly, I think my, I, I still thank my mom for it. She said when I was 12, she said, I hate cooking, so you can or complain or do something about it, so you get a budget. And I remember I got two euros when I was 12, a euro just got introduced mm-hmm. and I got two euros per family member. And on Wednesday, I was free in the afternoon so I could go to the supermarket and purchase, uh, purchase food. Well, starting off with the typical stuff that, that the 12 year old cooks, but at some point evol- it evolving a little bit into more, a little bit more sophisticated meals mm-hmm. where I started experimenting and actually loved, ended up loving to cook. Again, fast forward 18, 19, started my catering and small catering business here in Amsterdam. 
together with a, a friend and actually cooking for bigger groups of people, uh, people turning 40, turning 50, anniversaries, marriages, whatever, and just cooking great food with local produce, trying to connect farmers and consumers. So back then, first time that I thought about, okay, how, what does the food system look like and what can we do to do this better? And we were trying to look for good produce. So talking to fishermen, farmers around the Amsterdam area, to understand how we can work more directly with them and actually have high quality food, but also a story to tell, right? So that happened. Meanwhile, I, I was looking for, uh, I, I studied law for a good two years. Can I got my, the best of us. Yeah, oh, for God's sake. Uh, I was 17 and I had to choose something, right? It's a typical story mm -hmm. about uh, studying law here in the Netherlands. Well, it wasn't something for me at all. I was way more curious about going out there, actually understanding more about the food system and I ended up studying food science. So food science in, in Italy, because there was a university there that was doing something very progressive. They were putting a lot of elements of the food system together. So I studied a bit of agricultural science. I did philosophy of food. I studied chemistry of food and, and anything in between. <laughs> and it was more of a holistic view on how we can look at food as an agent for change instead of an issue. So how do we grow food from now to 2050? How do we do it healthy for humans, good for the planet, well, within planetary boundaries, etc. And there, that really opened up my eyes because I had opportunity to work a little bit in, in Argentina uh, with, a, with a local community on, on how they use their food as, as medicine. I was in Ethiopia and coffee. I've seen a lot of the world and especially through that food lens. Which made me go to London, where I ended up studying, studying food policy. So mm -hmm. how do we feed the world in 2050? Which made me end up in Tanzania, wanting to work on the other side of the food system, trying to understand how to work with smaller farmers and create an access to markets, to Nepal and back to the Netherlands in the end, which has all, always been about eating better, mm -hmm. creating a more future-proof food system and making sure that there is a win-win in every trade in the end, right? That there's a win-win between a better quality on the one hand and a, and a better outlook to the future on the other hand. What are the biggest misconceptions about food? Oof. Yeah, it's very difficult to talk about misconceptions in the Netherlands, but I think one of the biggest misconceptions about food in the startup world, so in my environment, is that we're all eating better and healthier and are consuming better. That is simply not true. We're talking a lot more about food, we're watching way more food shows, cooking shows and food shows. I mean, they're uh, everywhere, but we're not per se cooking way more. So we like to talk about food. We like to look at food. We like people to cook for us, but we didn't really move a lot into the direction of cooking at home way more, for example. We also, even though I was yesterday night, I was at a great lecture in the Bali here in Amsterdam, mm -hmm. uh, talking about eating less meat. I mean, we're going into the, the Christmas period. Most meat is consumed in this month in the Netherlands. 50% of consumers say they're vegetarian and want to eat less meat. But at the same time, on average in the Netherlands, we're still consuming per capita six times a week, 100 grams of meat a day, hmm. six times a week. So we all talk about being flexitarian and changing a little bit and changing behavior, but we're not really. Hmm. And I think that's the biggest misconception about the food system at the moment is that that transition is going very quick. And yes, the transition is happening. We are seeing it in coffee. We're helping that transition, hopefully a lot in coffee, but it's not going as quickly as we all see. And I think you also see that in other startups, for example, in alt meat, it's not going right. Valuations went down like crazy. It's not going as quickly as, as we all expected, right? The adoption rate of alternative meat and protein is way slower than ever expected, for yep. example. In the plot path. And yeah. you said the red thread has been food, but it also feels like you're very dedicated to not only better tasting food, right? But also like better sourced and also getting the people involved, getting the people in that value chain, starting with the farmers, a better life and a, and a bigger share of the pie. Where yep. did, what or where did you open your eyes to that part of the food world? That has been the first time I, uh, I, I saw coffee growing. Mm. And, and I saw people without talking down to anyone, but in absolute poverty. And I don't like to talk people about being in poverty because that's, that's not for me to normally say what poverty looks like, mm -hmm. right? But objectively, saw people that were not thriving at all, producing a cup of coffee that literally was produced for Lavazza, mm -hmm. uh, because I was out working on a project with them. I can just name them. And at the same time, knew what I was paying for that coffee uh -huh. in when I was living in Italy back then. And I was like, where is this coming from that we can't manage to create a bit more of a, a fair and equitable mm -hmm. uh, value chain and fair and equitable world? And when I'm talking about good food, as a red thread or good food is something that has been leading for me. Good for me means 
that everyone involved has been treated well mm-hmm. and, and that there's more to it, right? Also, when, when I talk about wine or food or cheese or, or veg, talking about who produced it or where something is coming from, understanding how it's been produced for me contributes to it being good, right? Good in a broader sense than just good tasting. Because a good taste, I believe we can all make that happen, but good, feeling good about it, understanding more about it, it's also the fun part, right, of eating and drinking, at least it is for me, mm-hmm. uh, makes up good food uh, in a more holistic sense. Got it, yeah. So there's a lot of things actually involved. Uh, and it's so bloody complex. So we're continuously making trade-offs, right? I mean, we're not perfect either, eh? to be mm-hmm. clear, not at all. We're mm-hmm. just on our way to make a little dent into that whole coffee, uh, coffee system and ecosystem. And you're continuously making trade-offs because you can't do perfectly. And we, we have to make around 200 food choices a day as a consumer in the Netherlands. 200. And that's very unconscious, obviously, right? You don't consciously make 200 choices. Luckily, otherwise, we couldn't be doing anything else anymore. But unconsciously, we're making a lot of food choices continuously. Of course, we can't expect everyone to think about everything the whole time. And therefore, at least in coffee, I want to make sure that I'm credible enough for you, that you trust me to make that decision mm-hmm. for you to make mm-hmm. impacts. And then you can just consciously choose for that coffee and that's it. Got it. And I think more companies are doing this in other, in other areas. And, and uh, we need to trust, of course, in these companies to do right. What are you proudest of when you look at Bukuli or other endeavors? Um, I'm proudest when I see uh, consumers and, uh, and producers come together. And that's a very boring uh, thing maybe to say, but I'm talking to both, right? I'm on the one end, on the consuming end. When we stop this call, I'm going to one of our bars. I'm going to run the two-hour shift with one of our baristas, Mm -hmm. the barista team, just to also keep a feeling with our customers to make sure what they actually ask, what do they look at. And two days ago, I was on a phone call with our partners in Southwest Tanzania. So for me, that opportunity to talk to both is unique and is what makes my uh, day fun. And when that comes together, uh, I'm, I'm very proud because that's what we make happen, right? We're in the end matchmakers between tastemakers on the one hand, the coffee mm-hmm. farmer, and consumers who want more flavor. And if we can put that together, I'm very proud. Second proudest thing is our first store because uh, brick and mortar is very different than the direct consumer online business. And when the first store came together uh, with a, a team that was originally focused on online and pivoted into, made such a big pivot into a four-wall business, right? Into brick and mortar. That Seeing that come together and then seeing a first customer walk in, I, I, I will never forget. Can you imagine? And, and what's tough for you in this, this journey with Makuli? What, what are the things you've struggled with? A lot of uncertainty. I mean, I, I had a pretty decently paying, cool job with a lot of holidays and a nice house actually paid for by the company even. Imagine like that's in Nepal, that's possible. And and I had fun in my work without all the, the stress. And I think that one of the main things why I wouldn't do this, I would do it again if I would go back in time, but fast forward five years and Makuri is a success. Let's hope, right? I don't know if I would do the same again because you wake up with it and you go to bed with mm-hmm. the business. And that's takes a toll on the people around you, my partner, uh, on my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fine with that because I have the most fun when I work on Wakuli and with Wakuli and with my colleagues. But that also is the toughest. It's, uh, it takes over everything. It's 24-7 on your minds. Even when you're off on a Saturday walking through the city, I'm looking what other retail is doing. Whenever I'm in someone's home, I'm looking what is in your cabinets and why you drink what you drink. Mm-hmm. When I meet someone in the streets, it's always, it's always about coffee and wakuli and understanding how we can, can speed up this transition. Coffee is everywhere. And, um, and coffee is everywhere. Have you <laughs> developed sort of habits or tactics, tactics to deal with that? How do you keep yourself sane? How do you relax? Well, make no, I haven't, honestly. I'm, I'm going to be tried. totally fair. I, I've tried. I've tried many things. Mm-hmm. Now, what really helps is trying to say uh, for a day, I'm not looking at any metrics, right? So making sure that you don't nitty-gritty update yourselves with the latest sales numbers online or in stores, which I do normally do way too much, right? Also, being able to let go and trusting uh, other people. Mm-hmm. And I think I've got a great deal of trust in general, but when it's your, yeah, when it's your own business mm-hmm. and when you know there's so much on the line, because in the end, there's not so much on the line. I mean, if, if we wouldn't be there, the world goes on. But at the same time, we're working with 14,000 small holders. We're supplying 35,000 bags of coffee to people's mm-hmm. home every month. 
I don't want it to fail, but the main tactic is still to let go and trust other people. So don't, don't go on the weekend and check if something uh, is, is going on, but make sure that people will solve it themselves. And we've got a great team to do that. So I'm very blessed and lucky that we actually have that team to trust, right? And I think that's uh, the main thing. And then with my partner now and then uh, trying to say, this day I don't talk about Rukuli or anything related to Rukuli. Mm-hmm. And then I'm often quiet for a bit, but then we find other topics to talk about. <laughs> After some digging and digging and digging and digging. <laughs> yeah. <After laughs> and um, <laughs> do you have heroes, people you look up to, people that inspire you to do what you do? Well, I get inspiration from people mm-hmm. uh, and from different people. I think from people close to me, like first of all, uh, my co-founder and secondly, my, my other uh, LT, so a leadership team member, mm-hmm. uh, Mies, who's our CMO. When I see how dedicated they are, I'm always like, okay, this is, this is real dedication and I can learn something from it and from the team as well. In a bigger sense, what I find very cool is, is disruption in a broader sense. People uh, who said it can be done differently, the vision and persistence that people have to to change an industry at large, uh, way more disruptive than we're doing in coffee, uh, I think. Uh, I think that's really uh, inspiring, right, in a way. On, on the brand side, there are a few very good examples of people who have built great brands mm-hmm. uh, that I think are super interesting, including, uh, for example, Jan Belman from Tony Ciccoloni in the Netherlands as a, as a smaller example. So yeah, there's a lot of inspiration from different people. I don't have specific heroes. Got it. And do you have people around you that you go to for advice on Wakuli that you reach out to whenever you have a question in a certain category? Yeah, absolutely. We have per topic, we have a number of advisors mm-hmm. that we can call. We're lucky and blessed that we have such a great network of people build up the last few years that believe in what Wakuli does. Well, I did or came on board as an investor or simply an advisor, people that we can informally call. This morning I came from a, from a meeting with, uh, for example, Mark de Lange, founder of Raisin Tate, how they built a, an omnichannel, a true omnichannel business, right? Between, uh, online, uh, glasses and, uh, and, and stores. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever I'm talking about store rollouts and our next steps, uh, he's the guy to call, right? Or building a brand, right? In the Netherlands, for example, investors like Willemijn Verloop who has built uh, brands and companies and NGOs uh, throughout uh, her life. Yeah, there, there are many people we luckily can call and have a speed dial for a founder of Hutspot, Nick van Aals, mm-hmm. who now works with us on the transition to offline. Uh, also, of course, a locally owned business, but uh, was very successful for many years in retail. We've got uh, financial people from, for example, Joe and the Juice, very different uh, company, but uh, European-based, hundreds of stores, former CFO on the board. Well, we have many people that, um, yeah, that can help us out. And what are the most important things you uh, learn along the way? Like the, the things with the biggest impact. I'm sure you learned thousands of <coughs> small things, but I'm really looking for the, the big uh, game changers for you. Well, what I personally learned for myself is that uh, what I really like is the flexibility in having to redefine your job every six months or every year. Or we've, got, we've had a slower year, maybe every year and a half. But where a year and a half ago, I was fully focused on, on disrupting our value chain and making sure that that was solid, right? And then we had that we had good partners in origin. We now have a great team already for years, but a great team that took over in impact and sourcing. And I'm building retail source, right? I'm in the lead of our out-of-home expansion. So you have to uh, redefine who you are the whole time and sort of let go of the idea that someone is an expert in it and therefore should do it. But if you should create uh, an opportunity to build that expertise around you, and go with it. So go with enough information, right? Take that, take that 30 uh, hours of learning, but not the 3000, mm-hmm. making sure that, that you have enough experience around you. And at the same time, enough gut feel to be able to go forward and then learn on the job. And in the last year, I've spoken to almost everyone who has ever, anything to do with retail in the Netherlands and beyond. And I believe that is of, 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 of uh, uh, at scale. And I mean, I've learned such a tremendous lot and I'm absolutely not an expert, but I feel comfortable enough now to lead our expansion to the next 10 stores in the coming year. And I think I've learned to trust on the advice of others, but also make sure that you keep your own pace and course to make sure that, that you uh, uh, keep to, in the end, what you believe is the most important. And in our case, to get people to drink better coffee wherever they are. And that should always be the mantra, not in favor of short-term gains, not in favor of a better P&L or anything else. Because if in the end, that's the way we want to change the industry, we should stick to it because we believe it's the way to do it. What would you recommend to people in, say, their 20s if they want to start a business? 
go talk to anyone who's already done it and just talk to as many people as possible and bother people. I mean, I get bothered a lot, mm-hmm. bothered in a good way through LinkedIn or, or other media just to, to talk for 20 minutes and get someone's ear, right? Talk to mm-hmm. people on the investor side, talk to people like you, talk to people uh, who are who are in the industry that you're trying to or disrupt or change something in or contribute to and just make sure that you say, hey, I know nothing. We did the same. I know nothing, but can I please have 20 minutes of your time and drink a coffee and do that with 50 people? You have a clearer idea of where the market moves to, where you might be able to find funding for your idea, uh, how your idea can develop or how you should kill your idea altogether and do something else. And I think the other thing is just it's keep on going and it's super uh, right typical. But we had two other business models to disrupt the same idea of coffee before we came to a direct consumer model. Then we both tested uh, that we put a lot of time and energy and all our personal savings in, and that was totally useless, we thought back then. But having tested it and not succeeded made that what is now working is actually working better because we know that we should stick to what we do and not move into that direction. And we've learned a lot from those mistakes. So uh, we try to, just as a small sidestep, but we try to have a B2B marketplace. So we said, what if all farmers that are actually now already on WhatsApp, what if we could get them on the marketplace and we could get roasters on that marketplace as well? And we create a level playing field, right? Between the two, being able to communicate directly about quality, about pricing, about uh, what is needed on both sides. We thought, well, marketplaces were also like at that moment, uh, everyone was talking about marketplaces, right? It was also just a sexy buzzword. But we thought if this works... It's very scalable. We get everyone on the platform and we just disrupt uh, the sector at large. Mm -hmm. The only thing that we oversaw is that roasters weren't interested at all because we were not solving an issue for them. We're making it more complicated to source their coffee. We're making it more expensive because they felt responsibility for producers. And we made it more difficult uh, because they now needed to deal with individuals instead of just with an importing company. So it was great for farmers, probably. We could have onboarded a million farmers, but we would have never sold a batch. So in the end, that's how we learned that we should roast ourselves, right? And that we should should be that actor and be uh, in between the farmer and consumer in the end. So, sorry, very long answer. Going back to your question, uh, perseverance, right? Uh, Try a few times and make sure that the first two fail because it probably will. And if you settle already beforehand that failure is okay, then you can stand up again, even though I had times as well where I thought, let me just go for a real day job again. And what I'm hearing as well is learn fast, learn by talking to people that know what they're talking about and learn fast by trying, basically. Yeah. Don't theorize and, too much. And fail fast. I mean, that's one of mm-hmm. our real mantras. That we'll yeah. If you want to do something, do it. Don't doubt, but do it quickly. Fail fast because that's way cheaper than failing slowly. So fail fast to make sure that you then learn from it and do something else. And be able to kill your darlings. I mean, I have so I also have vanity, right? Vanity projects where I said, this is really going to work. And it didn't work out. And then you need to be honest to yourself and say, even if I believed in it and it was really my pet project and I think it can conquer the world, we don't see that in the data. We don't see that in the market. Kill it and move forward and kill it fast. I think that's excellent advice. And Jorik, before we wrap up, is there anything you would want to share with the audience? Well, if there's anyone in there that um, is uh, looking to invest in a nice Series A for mm-hmm. 2024, uh, more than happy to reach out to my co-founders in the lease or to me. Because, yeah, we're raising a new uh, uh, small round of finance to make sure that we uh, keep making this impact and enlarge our footprint and create more accessibility and availability of our coffee, first throughout the Netherlands and then beyond, in stores and online. So yeah, if anyone uh, if anyone is interested in this kind of proposition and has value to add, obviously, then uh, more than happy to get in touch with them. No, and besides that, look in your uh, look in your cabinet at home and see if the coffee you're drinking is something that your parents or grandparents were drinking, and then make sure that you uh, that you level it up because it's not that hard and way more fun for you. And try try Rakuli. I highly recommend it. Visit the stores, try the, the subscription. Um, really, really good coffee. And, and as you've just heard, with a really awesome impact uh, in the world as well. Jorik, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. And best of Me luck too. with Rakuli. Thank you so much. And thanks for, uh, for believing in us and for this conversation. It's really cool. My pleasure.